Hey everyone, it's Anita and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. It is very busy times for the TechCrunch crypto team. We're gearing up for a lot of fun events, but we've got TechCrunch Disrupt coming up. We're back in person in San Francisco, and we've got a great lineup of crypto personalities and powerhouses. I'm going to be talking to Andreessen Horowitz crypto fund manager Chris Dixon, and Anita has a cool chat coming up with Anatoly of Solana. So we've got a lot of cool stuff going on. For our listeners, we have a special discount code, the promo code REACT all caps, will get you 15% off a pass, excluding the online passes and the expo passes. So that's my little pre-roll ad for Disrupt. And then we've got our sessions event coming up later, but we'll get you some more details on that later. Anita, this was a busy week for all of us in terms of crypto news, but I heard you had an interesting chat with someone from Block Damon about some big news coming up. What was that? Yeah, this is like the biggest news on everyone's minds in crypto right now, at least based on what I've been hearing. So I had a chance to chat about the merge, the upcoming Ethereum network upgrade. The merge. Yeah, it sounds very ominous. I've seen some funny tweets comparing it to like an astrological event, like an eclipse, but um, <laughs> it's it's on the horizon. It's supposed to start in September. And I had a chance to talk with the Ethereum ecosystem lead at Block Damon, Freddie Zwensker, and he kind of walk me through some of the misconceptions surrounding the merge. But I think before we get into that, we should just chat about what it is, like what's going on here, right? So yeah, the merge basically is this big network upgrade where Ethereum, the network, is changing its network transaction validation system. So they used to use a system called proof of work, and they're switching to proof of stake. And this is supposed to go in phases, but the first step is supposed to kick off around September 6th. And then the upgrades are going to continue for a few months thereafter. And the difference between the two, right? So proof of work is the system that Bitcoin uses right now. It's the system that Ethereum has used since it was founded. And it basically involves computers solving these really complicated math problems in order to validate a transaction. And that uses a ton of computing power. So it's super energy intensive. And the computers solving those problems are run by miners. So if you hear about like Bitcoin miners or Ethereum miners, they're under the proof of work system. And so because of a lot of the criticism around like the environmental impact and everything, Ethereum has decided finally that they are going to switch from proof of work to the proof of stake system, which is a lot more eco-friendly. And the way that that works is that investors in the network will just deposit their coins, which is called staking. So they'll stake their coins and they will essentially participate in this digital lottery system. So this algorithm picks who is a winner, who gets to actually validate the transaction. And if you win and you validate the transaction successfully, then you get rewarded by the network in tokens. So, you know, a lot of people within the Ethereum ecosystem are pretty excited about this. And the Ethereum price has also been going up, right? Like I know we were talking about that earlier, Lucas. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because like at the end of the day, Bitcoin and Ethereum are really the two pillars of the crypto token markets. And Ethereum's kind of swelling as time goes on. So basically, we've been in this kind of crypto downturn Bitcoin popped up a little bit, but now it's back to trading around $20,000 per coin. In the meantime, Ethereum has also been kind of sinking lower, but it's trading at a higher percentage. So right now, the entire Ethereum market cap is about half of what Bitcoin's is, which is pretty high relative to its historic metrics. So it's a big moment. And I think it's unique, especially because this is a transition that Bitcoin really will probably never make. There's no conversations internally for this to happen. 
a lot of the kind of stakeholders, so to say, stakeholders are, nice. <laughs> that was a good one. A lot of the stakeholders, so to say, are really fundamentally against this happening on Bitcoin. They're like, this doesn't need to happen. Ethereum can do whatever it wants. So this is a big transition. And I, I know we're only talking about an industry that's 10 or 15 years old, but this is pretty historic in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's kind of wild because I know that this has been a point of conversation that Vitalik, the Ethereum founder, has brought up as early as 2014. So this has been a long time coming. It's been in the works for a while. But what's kind of wild about it is I've heard some people, including Freddie, who I chatted with at Block Damon, compare this to like changing the engine of an airplane while it's mid-flight. So they've done a ton of testing. Like they've been prepping for this for years. Like it, I think the merge was supposed to happen earlier this year. It was supposed to happen last year. Like they kept pushing down the date that it's actually going to happen. And finally in September, I think we're going to see the network will actually get upgraded. But part of the reason it's taken so long is just because the network has wanted to be prepared because it's such a massive change. But I guess like, why are people in Ethereum so excited about this? I think that people think that this is a kind of a push towards the mainstream for like the Ethereum network. Maybe it's easy to forget now because just generally less people are talking about crypto networks in the mainstream. But obviously one of the big points of contention amongst the mainstream has been just the negative environmental effects of proof of work consensus blockchains. So they'll kind of point to things like different medium sized countries that like the entire Bitcoin network uses the same energy as or. Yeah, I think I read that Ethereum network right now, like uses as much energy as Finland. So that's where we're at today. Right. And that's like a, you know, that's a that's a high key energy output country. So I think that there's a lot of criticism about that, that people are kind of excited that Ethereum is going to be able to sidestep. And they think that this is going to be something that allows big brands who have avoided embracing NFTs or any of these things on the Ethereum network to kind of embrace it because now they don't have to worry as much about the environmental effects. So this can be a big moment for them. Aside from the environmental stuff, there have been a lot of conversation about how this has a lot of scalability benefits for the network and is going to enable some things that really allow the number of transactions to increase and allow the network to just be healthier generally. I think that like tied up in the environmental side, there's a lot of reputational and regulatory strengths that come along with it too. Some of the legislation that that's been passed federally and at the local levels has been around energy usage of these blockchains and kind of like yeah. maybe outlawing mining in a certain jurisdiction or something like that. So this just allows them to sidestep some of those little battles and focus on the big stuff ahead. Right. I mean, and the environmental costs have been pretty much everyone's biggest beef with crypto. Like if you talk to anyone who's outside of the industry, they're like, oh, like, isn't that super environmentally unfriendly? So I think this will, like you said, Lucas, be a good way for Ethereum to potentially deflect some of that criticism. But one thing I want to talk about is like there has been a lot of testing and people are feeling pretty good about the ability of the Ethereum network to actually pull off this transition. But that doesn't mean it's without its criticism, just mm -hmm. like with everything in crypto, like super controversial. And people have pointed out yeah. like some potential negatives or potential downsides. And one of the biggest ones that I've heard people talk about is the potential for this to cause like to lead to more centralization in the network. And the reason for that is it's very costly to become a solo validator under the proof of stake system. It's expensive, it's difficult logistically. And so a lot of people who have staked their Ethereum to this point have actually done it through like a staking pool. So like a larger entity where a bunch of different people come together under like one banner and they stake their Ethereum in a pool. Lido Finance is one of the biggest ones. I think that they currently have like somewhere close to 40% of the uh, overall staking market right now on Ethereum. Hmm. And so the issue with this is like, if there are a bunch of big staking pools that control the majority of transactions on the network and are able to validate most of them. And imagine that one of those staking pools is subject to a law or a legal change in a certain country, then that country could end up determining what kinds of transactions get validated. So the example here would be like Tornado Cash, 
which I know we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, if like, let's say like a US-based staking pool owns a bunch of the Ethereum network, and then the US comes out and says, we're going to ban this one protocol, or we're going to ban all transactions going through this one protocol, that could cause serious issues where, you know, Mm -hmm. then like, is the Ethereum network truly decentralized, or are they really operating under the regulatory jurisdiction of another country? Yeah, and I mean, this is a problem that like has kind of reared its head in proof of work also like their mining pools are the easiest way for people who are like individual miners to get a chance at getting access to mining rewards. But people who are fans of proof of stake would say that like, okay, well, even if like having an individual machine and getting your individual miner up and running is like non-trivial for a technical person, it's still a lot easier for an individual to go to a validator pool and just stake their ETH. That's like a very simple thing for somebody to do. The centralization thing, I think there are a lot of different facets that take on when you do it like this, especially when it all of a sudden seems like it's not going to be across geographies and that there's going to be a lot of people in the US will be staking through Coinbase or something like that. Like that leads to some problems. Yeah. I mean, there's no simple answer here, right? With proof of work, the mining equipment is super expensive. So that's a big barrier to entry. And in this case, staking pools have formed because people have other barriers to entry if they want to be individual validators. But on the note, of Coinbase, Vitalik of Ethereum went on a podcast with Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, the CEO, and they were talking about the merge and what it would mean for Coinbase. I mean, Coinbase has been really doubling down on staking lately, even in their earnings. They were kind of mentioning this is a big revenue stream for them. So Armstrong basically said that if they were required to censor transactions as Coinbase, like if they were subject to some US law or something like that, then they would actually rather just shut down their staking operation altogether. He said that would be the worst case scenario. Obviously, if there was some sort of legal decree, then Coinbase said that they would first try to fight it in court and try to challenge it legally. But essentially, the significance of him saying that they would rather shut down their operations than continue staking in a centralized way is that he was reaffirming Coinbase's commitment to helping the Ethereum network stay decentralized. It's a really big point of controversy. It's hard to determine whether there's a right or a wrong answer here or whether one versus the other system is really more centralized because there's so many different facets and aspects of it. But I did think it was interesting that Brian Armstrong was sort of adamantly defending the fact that he would try to keep Ethereum decentralized. Yeah, and I mean... Looking at just how proof of work looked like, I guess, back when China had more of a higher percentage of thinking about Bitcoin specifically, when a huge percentage of the entire like hash rate was coming from China, you know, some of these conversations weren't happening as much where you're just like, well, is that like a security risk to the network that like so much of this is coming from a single geography? And I know there's some like kind of like differences in how that all works. But yeah, I mean, there's so many like idealistic issues here, but I think that they've been planning for this so carefully over so many years. And there's $200 billion in this network at this point. Like, hopefully... Hopefully that's enough of a... An incentive to get it right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that the wildest part of all of this is like ideology aside and like the pro-con debate kind of aside, even though this has been in the works for a really long time, there are still a lot of misconceptions floating around about the merge. And that's what I chatted with Freddie at Blockdaemon about mostly was some of the big misconceptions that are still out there that are just not true. You would think that everyone would know what was going on at this point, but there's still some education that needs to be done here. And one of the big misconceptions he mentioned was that people think that you'll be able to to withdraw your staked Ethereum once the merge actually occurs. And that's not true because this is going to happen in phases. So you got the first phases kind of starting up in September this year. And then there's another upgrade called the Shanghai upgrade, which is supposed to happen in early 2023. And people who have already staked their ETH will only be able to withdraw that after the Shanghai upgrade occurs. And, you know, another misconception is like people think everyone's going to kind of 
withdraw their ETH the second that they get the chance to. But the way the system has been designed is so that you can't have everyone withdrawing all at the same time. Like there are some guardrails that have been put on liquidation at the end of the day. Another big misconception that Freddie mentioned was that people think the merge is going to reduce gas fees on the Ethereum network. And that's just not necessarily true. Gas fees are determined by the capacity of the network and the demand. And those are things that like, honestly, we don't know how the merge is going to affect them. We don't know if people are going to be trying to use the Ethereum network more. Like if they are, if it does really become more popular, like gas fees might go up. I don't know if there's going to be some scalability benefit on the other side that would balance that out. But all this is to really say there's still a lot of confusion as to what exactly the merge is going to entail. And I think companies and individuals are just sort of waiting and seeing almost like it is a a lunar eclipse or something. Like we're all going to get out there with our goggles and hope everything goes for the best, (laughs) right? Yes. Yeah. It's it's funny to see something that's been taking place in, in plain sight for years all of a sudden be like a source of speculation, which like it's crypto. So, of course, that's going to happen. Everything's a chance for speculation. Yeah. Right, right. Exactly. But it's like whatever. Buy the rumor, sell the news is like, I think, a big comment in crypto. But it's just like this has played out over so many years and it's just like so many different steps. So I don't know how this is going to affect the price, and I don't think anyone else does either. Yeah, if we knew that, we'd be uh, not sitting here, and we'd have a lot of money. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I guess maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if I could predict the future. No, but on that note, I think probably a good time for us to talk about some other big news from the <sighs> NFT world specifically. Right, well, we talked all about like the technical big shifts to the underlying blockchains. When we're looking at NFTs and some of the things that are just happening from integrations from platforms, this week a big thing happened where Meta is officially recognizing NFTs across Instagram and Facebook, meaning that users will be able to post them and it'll say this is a digital collectible. So kind of an interesting thing just in terms of people seeing NFTs in their daily lives a little bit more. This is something that other social platforms like Reddit and Twitter have already begun to integrate. On Twitter, you can have your little hexagon NFT icon and everyone will know that you pay <laughs> it's a big flex. five bucks to use Twitter blue every month, which is kind of hilarious. Not to mention whatever you paid for the NFT. but Exactly. And then Reddit you know, is doing stuff with digital collectibles also, but they're not even calling what they're working with NFTs. So they're trying to kind of like sidestep that side of the thing because obviously their user base is a little skeptical of crypto, I would say, by and large. But with meta NFTs, they're just kind of putting them in posts for now. So people will be able to connect their crypto wallets and they can do them across a few different blockchains, which is kind of unique. So on Twitter, you can only do Ethereum NFTs. On Instagram and Facebook, you'll be able to use Ethereum NFTs, but also NFTs on Polygon and Flow, which is Dapper Labs product. So people will be able to showcase their NBA Top Shot cards or any of the other things in that ecosystem. And you can connect it through using wallets like Rainbow, MetaMask, Trust Wallet, Coinbase Wallet, Dapper Wallet and a bunch of others probably. So it's a unique moment for Meta because they've talked about NFTs quite a bit and this probably plays into their metaverse dreams a little bit. It's kind of a dinky rollout, I have to say. Like it's just, you know, it's not like they're doing it across like a broad spectrum. Like this is going to like change everything. Somebody may have expected them to do like a big Bitmoji-esque avatar rollout and then like be able to buy accessories or something. Right now, all you can do is post them, show them. You can't trade them. You can't buy them. You can't sell them. It's all you can do. You can just flex them. That's what Instagram is for, is for flexing anyway, I guess. (laughs) Exactly. And at this point, you know, they usually, some of these like bigger features, they usually kind of bring them to the US after they've tested them in other geographies. 
countries. In this case, by last month, this functionality was already live in 100 countries. So now it's coming stateside, kind of signals that they're interested in doing more of this stuff down the road. But again, this is a pretty lightweight rollout, but it's a harbinger of things to come. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably aren't rolling your eyes at this, but I know a lot of my friends probably would be. So <laughs> we'll we'll see how it goes when everyone's like posting their NFTs all over Instagram. <laughs> you know, the fact is, I'll still roll my eyes at the individual people doing this. <laughs> I'll be like, I'll be like, good on Facebook and Instagram for doing this. But if I have friends who are like spamming my feed with NFTs they bought, I'm going to be rolling my eyes. Yeah, fair enough. So Jackie's been out on vacation this week, but uh, Anita, what have you been working on? Yeah, so been trying to hold down the fort while Jackie was out, <laughs> but um, wrote a couple of NFT-related stories this past week. One of them was about the digital avatar company Genies, which has a lot of big celebrity backing and um, some buzz there. And I also wrote another one on a startup that's using NFT membership passes for audience engagement. So it's really digging into the NFT space this week, which is a little unusual for me. And it was, it's been fun. Some nice diversity within the crypto sector. What about you? Yeah, this week, been focusing a lot on our big event in Miami, November 17th, Crypto Sessions. So we've announced a few of our speakers so far. We've got Ava Labs' John Wu coming, Phantom's Brandon Millman. FTX Ventures' Amy Wu, and we just announced Bitwise's Catherine Dowling coming. So we've got a great lineup of guests. It's going to be a really awesome event. I'm psyched for it. It's actually our first event that we've TechCrunch has ever held in Miami, which is kind of crazy. But excited to go. All of our listeners can get 15% off with our discount code exclusive for Chain Reaction listeners. It is REACT2022, and you can enter that at checkout for 15% off your ticket price. So come hang with us. Come pay to be our friends. Yeah, you're getting a 15% discount from uh, what I normally try my friends to hang out with me. So consider yourselves lucky. I'll see you all in Miami. Also, make sure to tune in on Tuesday next week for our interview episode. We're going to be chatting with James Zhang, who is the founder and CEO of Concept Art House, which is a Web3 art and design studio for NFTs and video games. We'll be back every week with interviews with the experts in the Web3 space. Catch Anita, Jackie, and myself every Thursday for the latest in crypto news. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and more from our guests can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Chain underscore Reaction. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Anita Ramaswamy, along with my co-hosts, Lucas Matney and Jackie Melanick. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.